tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. King of Podcasts Radio Network proudly presents the Broadcasters Podcast. Here is the King of Podcasts. Currently at day 108 of the writer's strike. And what, day 32 of the, the actors part of the strike, the sag after strike. It's August 14th. So if I put those days together, what am I thinking of? 14... What is it? 14, 17, 34 days now of the actors on strike as well. And at the moment, the writers and the AMPTP Alliance of Motion Picture and TV Producers, they are meeting right now. We're going to get back and talk about the strike because it's been a couple of weeks since I talked about the strike. I was doing my best as possible to not continuously go ahead and hit over the head, the strike, the strike, the strike, because it was going on so much. So, I gave you a couple of weeks. Well, you know, I gave you uh, a couple of weeks off, right? I gave you a couple of episodes last week. That was really fun. Talking about Taylor Swift and Barbie and all that stuff, right? We did that. I did, I think, a pretty good job of covering all that. And I really appreciate all of you listeners for listening to that Taylor Swift episode or listening to me talk about her twice. But what can I say? You know, I, I put a whole lot into that. So I do appreciate all of you listening to that. And we move along now. And we continue. Actually, you know, there was another episode. Maybe there's something more here because I'm missing. I don't know. I have to go and look. Because maybe there's an episode I forgot to put in here that I did not put because I'm looking on the website and I see some of the episodes are not showing up there. So I got to fix that. Ooh, I got some work to do. But I'm consistent doing weekly shows. Oh, we talked about Lizzo the week before. That's right. See, I did some good for you all. I did talk about a lot of things. We were just kind of like moving along as we went. But I've been a little bit slacking on the website. I got to fix that up. We'll patch that up tonight as I do this. If you saw the website, you'll know what I'm talking about. But by the time you hear this episode, you will not know what I'm talking about. There you go. I got housekeeping to do on the website, which it all starts in one place. Kingofpodcasts.com. Kingofpodcasts.com. And if you haven't had a chance to listen, I did previous episodes for wrestling. I talked about, you know, when it comes to the second biggest promotion in wrestling, AEW, and they're all in pay-per-view going on in London where they're going to be held. It's going to be held in front of 80,000 plus screaming fans at Wembley stadium coming up in a week and a half. Talked about that. And earlier this week, I talked about sugar daddies, which is a constant issue. I was talking about on the, the praise and debauchers, which you can find every Tuesday night. I drop it. And then Wednesday nights is wrestling is real podcast. And then tonight, Thursday night is broadcasters podcast and that's what i do and also my podcasters row series which i just started and had an episode i put up earlier this week the host of the podcast the Tao of self-confidence sheena yap chan so there's a lot to go and look for right now king of podcasts.com i don't normally do the billboard of you know the menu of content that i have on the site but if you want to go and take a look at it go ahead and look for yourself also if you want to look at the music playlist i have on spotify i'll do that too while i'm shilling 
and make mention of that I have new songs in there under the Mega Miami category, which is where all the new music goes in, including Olivia Rodrigo's uh, Bad Idea, right? Which I'm pretty sure tomorrow, as I listen to BBC Radio 1, the official chart will probably deem that the number one song in the country and in the UK that'll beat Sprinter that's been on the top of the charts there in the UK for 10 weeks. I'm guessing Olivia Rodrigo will win that number one spot tomorrow as I rec- as I as I listen tomorrow on the road doing some work and stuff. And this weekend I'm watching Blue Beetle on Friday and Strays on Saturday. And you know, maybe if you want to hear a review on that, you let me know and I'll fill you in on that as well. If there's anything worth to mention about it on either or those points. And then I also expect the Billboard Hot 100 to put Bad Idea right, probably at number one as well. I think it'll topple on both. The song's getting a lot of swell, groundswell right now on TikTok. I'm seeing the videos, along with the Bama Rush, along with Planet of the Bass, which I'll talk about here on the program too. Oh boy, uh, DJ Crazy t- Times, right? We'll talk about that a little bit. And if it's not that I'm watching on TikTok, it's the Whip It Challenge, the Daz Band, the 1982 hit, which I think I talked about on the program already. But yeah, it never ceases to amaze me. It continues to go on for another week. Third week, I think I've been watching it. So there you go. Let's talk about the writer strike. The WGA and AMPTP talks continue, but remain very fluid. I'm taking this from the wrap. So there have been daily talks now with the studios. Now, last week, I did make mention of that they've been starting to get back and negotiate. So negotiations are now on a daily basis, which is nice. So here's where we are right now. Last two weeks, ever since I talked about Lizzo and Taylor Swift, the Writers Guild of America, the Alliance of Motion Picture TV Producers, have gotten back to negotiating. They did a talk about resuming talks on August 4th and subsequent meetings last Friday and this past Tuesday. So now negotiations have increased. Three individuals with knowledge of the talks told the rap that studio chiefs are now more in frequent discussions with each other about latest developments. So there we go. Moving along. This is due to an increased urgency by the studios to end the strike over concerns of a prolonged work stoppage, accelerating the, late, the rate of linear TV cord cutting with no new scripted programming and harming production on films set for theatrical release next year. Right. Now we're getting into the serious business. Four months in, can't keep going on with this. And the writers and the actors are in solidarity. So there's nothing can be done to move this where both... Unions are taken care of at the same time. That's the plan. And there's a story from the rap that also talks about the deal with the TV business on network TV. That's what I'm talking about with linear TV is the TV business on network TV, because now we're going to get a lot of reruns. We're going to get reality shows and we're going to get some shows brought on from other outlets that would have been streaming that are now being provided on free TV. That's the part that's also taking away is that, to see the fact that free TV is now going to get a chance to get some of these shows that normally, you know, the streamers are getting people to pay for, it's not going to look good. And they can only do so much of that because they want to keep that premium content. But if they're getting the promise that some of these programs are going to get thrown on premium TV events are going to be thrown on linear TV or network TV eventually, then they're going to say, what's going on here? That doesn't smell right. So now what we got so far in this is there are the, the issues we already know. And one of the issues I've been talking about the most here is the ridership. Let's talk about the linear part. We'll talk about that first because that was brought up in the stories from the rap and they talked about it. 
<clears throat> so we already know that in July, for the first time ever, 50% of viewership, that network TV used to get 50% or more of the viewing audience, but now that is gone. It is truly taken a blow. And now there's a problem here and they got to figure out an answer to this. So now taking the story, Nielsen says that linear TV, which has a soft advertising market on top of audiences, steadily eroding by cord cutting. They officially fell below 50% of viewership for the first time ever. And new data shows some advertisers are shifting their spend away from broadcast and cable to get the most bang for their buck. Now, combined primetime TV sales for linear and streaming for the new season, 2023-2024, has grown by 3%. And it is $27 billion. It's a lot. But now, network and cable channels, their sales are declining 5% year over year. And for the broadcast networks, you know, the NBC's, ABC, CBS's, if any of you still watch those on your rabbit ears, they're down 3%. 3% is a big chunk. And also the cost for 30 second spots now for adults has dropped 3% as well. 7% for cable. Those stats really make a big difference. So like what I'm saying about this all right here, it translates to the fact that network TV continues to keep losing money in advertising to try to prop that up. And with the streamers and the idea that there might be less programming out there. Listen, Netflix right now, nobody's talking about the fact that, you know, was that the movie that Gal Gadot was featured in and I watched it this weekend. Wow. What a bomb that was. It was really bad. Okay. What was the name of this again? Heart of Stone. I sh I forgot. I th sorry. The Taylor Dane song is what I think about. You know, when I'm thinking about Gal Gadot here, Gal Gadot stars in the Heart of Stone. Oh oh oh! I can't believe it, and I can't believe she did this movie. It was really bad. Now, the only thing that might have really worked out at all for this particular movie was the fact that uh, Ali Abat it was a pretty prominent Bollywood star, got a chance to do a movie in the West, which is good for her. But Gal Gadot got into this movie. Jamie Dornan, Fifty Shades of Grey fame, also in this movie. And they spent roughly $130 million for this movie. And I'm like, I wonder why two years ago this movie got sold to Netflix. Another one of those that just, it's like Cloverfield. Like it's just one of those bomb movies that was going to tank in the box office. And Netflix took it up. And said, "Well, we're going to take it because we're going to probably make some make some money and keep some people watching our content because we'll have Gal Gadot in a big feature movie exclusive to Netflix." And that's what they did. But it was a horrible movie. I would not have paid to watch that. I don't know if anybody else feels the same way, but hey, the Rotten Re Tomatoes reviews did not help either. Like, I mean, the only thing that was an advantage for Netflix to watch it on Netflix was to be able to skip some some of those parts that I knew was going to be predictable and boring and just bad because it was. The whole part where Gal Gadot and her Elia Bot's character were out in the desert and they're trying to find their way back to civilization. I was like 30 minutes right there that we didn't need. 
even though, yeah, people are still trying to follow them. It's just like this real predictable spy drama. This is like, Gal Gadot, why are you taking these parts? I know you got to take part in movies to make money, but I mean, this was one of those movies that like, we don't need you to take in this part. This is, just, this is like one of those Liam Neeson, you know, Gerard Butler type movies. That's what you did. This Gerard Butler, Liam Neeson caliber movies. Like, wow, don't take those. That movie would have lost in the box office. You've got, you know, the, the studio that made this movie, they did a good deal with Netflix to get what they got for it. They came away with a bargain because if this would have been put out in the theaters, it would have been a bloodbath. I mean, you think that Joyride and about my father and Haunted Mansion did bad? Oh, watch this go into the toilet. Just saying. Another thing that was being said was by a firm that's called Guideline that tracks about 90% of the U.S. agency market using billing data, advertising agencies, right? Digital advertising now accounts for 60%. So that's internet, online, period, streaming, 60% of ad spend in 2023. For broadcast to cable TV, 34% of the ad spend. And five years ago, that was half. So the advertising dollars are going away from the traditional standard places for content for all these major corporations. Hey, I mean, tough on them to have this problem to them, but you know what, what they're going to do? They're struggling. And so streaming and content online are taking up the advertising and streaming is probably not even getting some of that either, unless they're putting up a had supported model. I'll tell you what, and all the corporate media was trying to say, oh, well, the, you know, advertisers are committed to their fall schedule. The upfronts were all saying, hey, we got all our money locked in for the next year and all things like that. But it's not enough. It's not enough to go ahead and really take care of. So just keep that in mind. So Netflix, I mean, Netflix did launch in November an ad-supported version for themselves to try to make some money to offset, you know, the lack of subscribers that are starting to weed away. And that a company took share from traditional TV broadcasters as well as digital video platforms and filled all their inventory for 2023-2024. And the ad tier is going to over 10 million monthly active users compared to, what, 200 million subscribers right now? And that's doubling from the nearly 5 million uh streamers or those that are buying on advertising ad supported streams when they put it in May. So there are people that are still buying it, but you know why It's because the price keeps going up. Once the price got jacked up on Netflix just recently, my brother was the one that got the, the account plus the sharing of passwords and cutting down on that. Well, you're just getting Netflix to just say, Oh, you know what? We're going to see people will, will still feel like they got to go ahead and opt for the ad supported version, but you're not going to like it and you'll go away from it. And so the fact they might've gotten 10 million, you know, subscribers to stick around for the ads, that's not going to do and take away the erosion of subscribers. that will go away because they want to be able to just pay and never see ads again. There's no answer for this, but the corporates don't have an idea for it anyway. They're trying to figure out what they want to do. So that's the story right there. And right now they're also saying the media analysts are saying that, Broadcasted cable TV right now is past the point of no return. Metrics are all bad. 
And it doesn't matter what live sports, what they have. It's just, it's going on. And there's no way of turning around. So the streamers, they need to be able to make money for these big corporate conglomerate media types. They have to have it happen because if it doesn't, they're struggling. That's what they have to do. Now back to the story of the strike. I'm giving you the perspective of the stream of these streamers and these big media companies that own these streamers and what they're dealing with right now. That's the issue. Now, one of the issues that's being discussed is where, well, first of all, the investors, the people that are representing the studios or those that are investing in the studios, they've been talking about this. Let's bring this story up real quick. Barons.com talks about how what all Hollywood executives have said to investors about the ongoing strikes. Now, this is pretty heavy stuff because second quarter earnings are all across the board. And what are you going to do right now to keep all these people at bay? Because you got to figure something out to make this work. And so what we have so far is this. Publicly traded firms have told investors they're saving on money now for production, though a prolonged strike will hamper release schedules. Pretty much what we already knew about that. And then the earnings calls for all these big conglomerates. Netflix, they told investors the company doesn't want to strike. Sarandos, Ted Sarandos, the co-CEO, grew up in a union household. He understands the financial toll a strike puts on workers. Says there's got to be a lot of work to do. A lot of handful of complicated issues, but they're super committed to getting an agreement as soon as possible, one that's equitable and enables the industry and everybody in it to move forward into the future. And then in Comcast, which owns Peacock, the president there, Michael J. Cavanaugh, said that strikes present a challenge in the near term, but multiple times he said the firm is committed to having a fair deal reached as soon as possible. Bob Backish, Paramount CEO, their strikes are on top of mind for them. Meanwhile, they're touting the firm's sports lineup, new additions to the CBS schedule, including Yellowstone and SEAL Team being pulled out from Paramount Plus onto the CBS schedule. And then you look for Sony, and they say that, you know, unclear when the strikes will end, but the firm works with the AMPTP and producers to reach a, steal, reach a deal as soon as possible. Now, Disney, Bob Iger, he addressed the ongoing strikes, and then he said this. And remember, this is the same guy that's been also bashing on the strikes as well and did not make any friends right off the, off the jump quote. Nothing is more important to this company than its relationships with the creative community, actors, writers, animators, directors, and producers deep respect and appreciation for all those who are vital to the extraordinary creative engine that drives the company and our industry. Yeah. Very, very public relations friendly, right? My fervent hope is we quickly find solutions to the issues that have kept us apart these last few months, personally committed to working to achieve this result. So that's the overall take right now. And that's from Barron's. They talked about that. So there are a few things that are being ongoing right now with the strike that need to be understood. And that's what some of the projects that are still moving along as we speak. So there's that there's the writer's rooms. And there's also a, a few other things we'll bring up as well. Now, Duncan Crabtree Allen, one of the negotiators for SAG-AFTRA, he says there's no contract between the AMPTP to SAG-AFTRA, 
but they hope to come back to the table with the Writers Guild and intend of making a fair, equitable, and respectful deal. The interim agreements right now have points that were last offered when the APTP broke off talks without an agreement. The APTP companies could have signed the deal on July 12th and there would have never been a strike, an interim agreement that was put in play. And they have hundreds and hundreds of applications for interim agreements from independent producers who find them absolutely acceptable and practical and realistic. 210 projects have signed interim agreements and 179 have resumed or completed production. And 41 have yet to complete the approval process where we're allowed to audition actors and engage in negotiations regarding casting. So there's still content being done, but the major stuff is not happening right now. A person familiar with this new policy right now, with the interim agreement right now, is that only about 15 to 20% of independent feature films covered by sag After are also covered by the WGA and normal times and during the ongoing writers and actors strikes. So truly independent projects are going to be able to film during the strike as long as they agree to be bound by the terms of whatever the guild eventually deals with, gets from the AMPTP. Keep that in mind. Now, one of the other issues is the writer's rooms. We're getting into the September holiday, Labor Day weekend that's coming up. And that's when TV starts getting to be pretty big deal. So Labor Day is taking on additional significance as a threshold for the writer's work stoppage to end in order for the networks to air meaningful seasons of their original live action scripted series and at least have 13 episodes air. Crossing it without a deal or significant progress by October could delay the launch of series for the fall and spring until fall 2024 and put some sophomore and bubble shows even beyond broadcast in potential danger. As you remember the writer's strike in 2007, there were a number of shows that were lost because they couldn't withstand the strike. So the timing has been on the minds of TV production executives, producers, and showrunners as the fall approaches. They do not want to go to October. They want to get this done now. And so early September end of the writer strike and a subsequent AMPTP agreement with SAG-AFTRA would return drama series to premiere by mid-February and new ones by March so they can get their standard mid-season runs of 13 episodes within the regular broadcast season. In the normal point, many network dramas would have already shot their fourth episode of the fall season. That's according to Warren Light, who's a showrunner with Law & Order SVU for many years. And he wrote that on August 8th. And he also says if the strike were to somehow end by Labor Day and shooting were to begin by early fall, the network should still salvage a 13-episode season. The clock keeps ticking. And that would benefit network and cable to be able to get those 13 episode seasons in at least they would get a season in and a show would not stop stop production altogether to where they could just halt it and never come back so there's more optimism now in hollywood because we're three weeks away from labor day the guild the Writers Guild now is slated to respond to the AMPTP's counterproposal this week. There's still issues to resolve as writers are striking to keep their profession sustainable. And some project negotiations are going deeper into the fall until a deal is struck. So, ironically, broadcast TV 
arguably provides for the best living for rank and file riders and actors with year on employment, full size rider rooms. Cause we're doing 22, 24 episodes a season. The ability for riders to get on set producing experience and riders and actors to get generous residuals is the most impacted by the strikes. But remember, that's the other part too. We don't ever talk about the fact that, you know, there are certain episodes and series that are no longer going that full time route. But all those people that are doing those shows, like the NCIS, the FBI series, the Chicago series, you know, and all those, they're all benefiting from having all that time, you know, a good six to nine months of the year working. I mean, it works out for them really well. And they get full-time pay. They make enough of the threshold to be able to get the benefits for insurance and pension and all that stuff. So, yeah. With fewer broadcast repeats and declining cable syndication, most network series rely increasingly on streaming for their afterlife, making streaming residuals, which is also an issue in the Guild's contract negotiations. Because, you know, I mean, I look on network TV right now. There's not a lot of stations out there that are able to go and pick up some TV show that goes to syndication. And some of them are not opting to go to syndication because they go right to streaming. If you look on your normal access time, 6, 7 p.m. at night on your local TV stations, you notice they're not picking up a lot of new shows. I mean, you know, the Goldbergs might get picked up. That's the most recent one I've seen out there. But look, they still well, they still show Everybody Loves Raymond. They're still showing Seinfeld. They're still showing Two and a Half Men. They're still showing, you know, Big Bang Theory. They got not much else. Not really. And none of those shows are able to go make that point. Now, there are some... Leftover shows, NBC's Found, The Irrational, Bagna P.I., and fresh episodes of Quantum Leap. Those are the only ones that are out there that are fresh episodes that are going to run a fall season. But everything else is going to consist of sports, reality, animation, a scripted series that have already aired elsewhere. Yellowstone getting a run on CBS on Sunday nights. How about that? And with the rest of the broadcast scripted series intended for the coming season, it all hinges on when the strike will end. So now for studios to restart TV production, once the strike is over, writers have to come back first to get working on scripts, explaining why the AMPTP reached out to the WGA first. And then the SAG after agreement would presumably follow after that. And then filming with actors to begin with scripts are ready. Right. So if it does end, when it does end, the writers will get their deal first to get them back on the, st- on the set and back of the writer's room. And then the scripts will be ready for the actors to perform. That all makes sense. According to industry sources, and I'm reading from Deadline, by the way, it's starting from scratch with no bank scripts. It will take at least two months after the strike ends for an established drama series to start delivering new episodes for multi-camera comedy. It takes at least six weeks to get those up and running from scratch. And it also, and for reality, it could take up for an extra month for finished episodes of the comedy or drama series to start coming in. So we already know that most of the fall is going to be a bit of a wash. So if you want anything for the new 2023-2024 season, for streaming, for cable, for television, you know, network TV, this has got to get done. So already know that we've had award shows that have been affected by this and others. And then there's the point they bring up here where if the strike for the Writers Guild goes to October, networks would have to make difficult decisions, especially on newer scripted series. 
Faced with the prospect of only being able to air six to eight episodes of a new show in mid-season before the season ends in late May, factoring the pricey launch of marketing campaigns, networks could opt to keep some new series for fall 2024. And so that means for series getting into their second season, those that launched last mid-season only had a couple of months to establish a connection with viewers. Other shows like ABC's Home Economics and The Rookie Feds are undecided about what's going to happen to them. Veteran series with devoted fan followings, a longer break between seasons is not ideal, but doesn't affect viewer turnout. So like if FBI is gone for a while or NCIS is gone for a while, yeah, nobody's being hurt by that. Now, people remember where COVID also affected us as well, because there were series that were headed to season two. Netflix had the society and I'm okay. Okay. With this showtime had on, on a becoming a God in central Florida and ABC had Stumptown that all got dropped after a long time of shutdown production from the pandemic. You know, those series couldn't get to a season two. And that's part of the issues we have here as well. So one of the other areas I talked about that we already just mentioned before about the network shows of the writers rooms. There hasn't been much about the strike pressure. If there's enough to bridge the gap on the most disputed issues, one that's still a haunting issue right now is the staffing of writers rooms. The writer skill seeks terms that codified a traditional writer's room in the contract and ensures upward mobility for younger staff writers. Look at the building experience that need to be writers producers. And studios have a long time stood against the writer's guild against setting quotas on how many writers they hire, usually using shows written entirely by a single writer as examples of how such quotas would be too inflexible for both studios and writer producers. There's also a concentrated effort right now by the studio insiders to get the deal done, keeping a lid on the finer details of what has happened during negotiations. So right now we haven't gotten many leaks about it either. People just want to get it done, which that's good to hear that we're not getting any other information about it. The picket lines and leaks have been met with dismissiveness, and the writer's guild keeps telling the rap that the general mentality among the rank and file is to keep calm and picket on until the negotiating committee formally announces a deal. WGA has not sent any memos to members regarding this talk since informing them Friday. So everybody's keeping under wraps. Negotiations are going on. They need to get it done. That's all there is to it. WGA strike captain Haley Harris makes a point and talks about now. She and her fellow guild members who have marched on the Paramount picket line for the past 108 days are confident the writer's guild won't come to them with an unsatisfactory deal as all the terms of the guild they're fighting for won't have the desired effect if anything gets left out. Remember, we said this was going to have to go all the way through. All the demands have to be met this time. They just can't take a money deal. So for them to have held out longer than a 2007 strike, they want to get everything in. So she makes the point. Residuals. That's for streaming residuals, not based on subscribers, but on actual viewership. Employment length, minimum room size, all go hand in hand, because if we don't get one, but get, don't get the others, they'll just undercut us on what we don't get. 
F3 get residual increases, but not minimum room size. The studios will try to push writers towards writing shows on their own. Right. Cutting out more work. So the union is going to stick to it. And it sounds like everything that's being said about this needs to be pushed towards that. Now, we're not saying anything that we don't have any issues when it comes to the studios, but the streamers are still dealing with an issue here because the Writers Guild, you know, they might be still in negotiations around the MPTV, but the streamers, they're still having issues with. They've called the Writers Guild West, WGA West has called for government regulation of anti-competitive practices against accusing Disney, Amazon, and Netflix of it. They released a report calling for more government regulation, saying, quote, they are abusing their dominance to further disadvantage competitors, raise prices for consumers, and push down wages for the creative workforce. The executive summary of the report called the new gatekeepers, how Disney, Amazon, and Netflix will take over media. They contend that, quote, without intervention, these conglomerates will seize control of the media landscape and the streaming era's advances for creativity and choice will be lost. These new gatekeepers have amassed market power through mergers and other anti-competitive practices, offering an alarming window into the future of media. Well, just take a look at radio. What do, don't I always talk about radio and say, hey, radio did that. Did we all forget about that? But no, that's the way it is. Yep. In the report, they point out these big accused media companies. First, they said that Disney has grown through a series of multi-billion dollar acquisitions using its power to reduce film output, shut down competing studios, foreclose independent content from distribution networks, expand control of the labor market, and force creators to give up financial participation and future licensing revenue. Yeah. So when Disney bought Fox, when they dropped Miramax, right? All these different things. Fox Searchlight, uh, what was the other... Uh, what was the other Fox, not Searchlight Pictures, but it was another studio that they had underneath that was doing independent films and being distributed as such, and Disney dropped it, right? They say that Amazon has gained a sizable footprint in a short time by utilizing the well-documented playbook critical to its ascendance as a tech company. Anti-competitive behavior, vertical integration, Amazon has harmed competitors, privileges related business, and abused employer leverage to underpay writers. And as for Netflix... Once an innovative competitor, now using their position as the largest, largest streaming service in the world to abuse its leverage as an employer, decrease innovative content spending and raise prices for consumers. And they've cut out independent producers, severely underpaid writers in multiple areas. And a series of recent acquisitions signal its intent to further increase dominance and market power in order to reduce innovative content investment. Yeah. Just like any big company, Netflix was really doing a lot for the independent creators and putting some good deals in, but you know what? They're starting to tighten up themselves. And some of the content they're doing is subpar. I could have told you that Netflix's quality was dropping. If you don't notice that in the original series, it is. Okay? You're not getting as many House of Cards, Stranger Things, Orange's New Black type quality. Not so much. A lot of throwaway content, if you tell me. A lot of disposable content, honestly. 
Streaming video now is the most dominant distribution platform for content, but it's largely unregulated, taking the problems of vertical integration and media consolidation to the extreme. Their dominant employers of user leverage erode the sustainability of writing work. Further consolidation could result in fewer writers to earn a living and diminish variety in the marketplace of ideas. Well, you know what? This is why the Internet's there. Internet is still the Wild West. What do you think happens when corporate companies, you know, get something involved? Maybe there's some room for some creativity and some room to open up a new adventure and a new chance for content creators to come out and do something really special. But then they change and they get big and grossly big and they just start taking over and they can command what they want. So they're asking for regulation that will block further consolidation. Yeah, stop deregulation. <laughs> Good luck with that. Radio tried, you know, radio never got to do that. Just remember, why do you think I talk about radio all the time? Even since the beginning of this program, it's because radio has already suffered all the issues that TV, cable, and streaming are going through, right? See, the talent and the staff of all those radio stations, they've been obliterated. They lost their jobs, many of them. And I moved on to other careers. Maybe some of them were doing like myself, working in podcasting. But no. Not much else can be done. But we're now at this point where here you expect, oh, increase the regulation, oversight, and streaming. Well, maybe they'll get some meetings and some hearings about it. But I doubt that. So where we are right now is there's not going to be much of an answer here for the Writers Guild to put out there. Listen, it's a nice report. They're not wrong. They are correct and accurate in what they're saying. But you can't expect Congress or expect the, you know Washington, D.C. to do anything about it. They're not. I don't expect them to do anything antitrust at all. All you can do is hit antitrust lawsuits on a regular basis when something is out there they can absolutely get. But at this point, these companies have power. They have money. They have influence. They have the lawyers. And the Writers Guild could put it out there and do this all they want, which is fine. They are calling out the right people. So I give respect to that. But, of course, the cynical side of King of Podcasts says, I don't see much, much coming of this at all. It's just where I'm at. But I appreciate it. So that story was reported. The other thing that's also being reported is the fact of we just talked about the restricting the restricting of what projects can move forward during the strike. Because right now the, the Screen Actors Guild will no longer offer NMR agreements on projects. So the Writers Guild has one thing, but this is where SAG after the actors right now. They will no longer grant permission to independent projects that fall under WGA contracts to continue production during the ongoing strike. Now, they did say they would be covered under the interim agreement policy, allowing approved independent productions with no direct connections to the actors union to continue filming. That's really what the basis right now of what we're getting for the Writers Guild at this point. And there's been other things that have been talked about as well. So a couple of the, one more show I want to bring up when it comes to the strike, and then we'll move on to some other business here. Executives are sizing up their war chests. As we mentioned earlier, Hollywood has been talking to their investors. 
in their earnings calls about what they're doing right now with the stoppage and they're all in solid everything. We need to get a deal done. Hollywood studios, streamers, affiliated businesses have begun forecasting lower revenue content spend. And in some cases, a lower outlook for the year. So they're going to get hurt by the investors. This is not promising news, but of course they said, Oh, they're, you know, saving money right now, but there's like, their problem is they're going to see a loss. We're going to see lower revenue and that's not going to help at all. Now, one of the other things they say too is that Netflix at the moment is still the best benefiting of the writer strike and the actor strike. As we're hearing right now, people, there's rec- record views right now for people watching suits. Okay. I watched suits on USA all except the last season. And yes, it was a very good show. Don't get me wrong. Yes. I do like Harvey Specter and Mike, you know, Mike Ross and, you know, Rachel and all the gang and Lewis Litton, you know, and oh yeah, yeah, sure, 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 sure. But come on for all you people watching on Netflix that did not take the time to watch it on USA when it did happen. Listen, even I, I went and saw the first episode and then I watched the second episode and I was like, eh, and I let it go for a little bit. And then I went back and caught up and I started watching season two and then watched all the way through and I never missed suits. It was very good, but I sat there and watched it as everybody else watched. So you guys getting into the memes right now and the jokes and enjoying Lewis lit and all the, you know, witticisms and the, and the movie references. Yeah. You're about eight years late to the party, pal. Okay. So don't, don't tell me about suits right now when you guys are watching. Oh, just because Netflix put it on. But this is where it happens. Netflix has the pool. They have the stroke. They're best positioned among the streamers to withstand the strike. A large library content and international production capabilities. Well, if they keep generating more movies that are more like Heart of Stone and less like Knives Out, they're going to hurt. I don't know how you how some of you can watch some of Netflix's content and expect like to enjoy some subpar direct to cable kind of stuff. You don't understand what I mean by direct to cable. Because when you used to go to the video store and you used to at least pay three, four bucks for a video, okay? Direct to cable, you were still putting some harder money on it. Netflix, you're putting the one price out there and maybe you'll find something that you'll like somewhat reasonable for whatever, but you have all this content to watch. But, you know, it's not the same as it was. They don't have the office up there anymore. Friends and all these other shows that people used to really enjoy, right? Because some of them all moved over. Just saying. Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed my 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 fair share of Netflix, okay? I enjoyed House of Cards. I watched all the way through. I watched Orange is New Black. Loved that show. It was great. I enjoyed... You know, the Queen's Gambit. My love for Anya Taylor-Joy is never-ending for that woman. Riverdale. Yeah, I definitely watched Riverdale, and I enjoyed it. But I did not watch the last season that just came out. Even though Kimmy Mendez is like a crush to me, okay? Like, I, I just, honestly, I watched Veronica Lodge. And any of you that, that think that's something wrong with that, you're dead wrong. Because I just love the character. I love her. What can I say? She's gorgeous. The wealth of content, according to Sarandos in the earnings call, could even bring additional subscribers if the strike persists. 
Wells Fargo analyst Stephen Cahal said in a July 19th report that like COVID and a prolonged Hollywood strike, Netflix likely gained share of engagement. All these companies in their earnings calls said they would spend less on content. How about that? Lower spend on content levels because they're trying to save money. Of course they would. Aside from the strike stuff, there's also another story that came out. The video game industry might now start feeling the pinch of unionization. So staffers at a video game studio called Working Man Interactive, they have filed to unionize under the International Association of uh, Theatrical and Stage Employees, IATSE. They would be the first video game worker union in, uh, in the U.S., Now, this game studio is based in Rochester, New York. They work with clients like Nickelodeon, Disney, and Nintendo, creating interactive experiences for museums and other event spaces. Workers are looking to unionize to address challenges across the industry, jobs insecurity, inadequate compensation, and a lack of collective representation. So now we're seeing this come up into play. A supermajority of workers, according to IATSE, have already signed union authorization cards. Management did not voluntarily recognize the union. But IOC's filed a petition for representation, representation election with the National Labor Relations Board on August 16th. So we can see this very well happening. Now, IOC represents typically crew members, technicians, and artists working in the entertainment industry, but they've been working to organize visual effects workers, including those working at Disney's Marvel. As of August 15th, IOC and Marvel have reached a new stipulated election agreement in which Marvel's in house visual effects workers will vote, will vote on whether to unionize. Election set August 21st runs through September 11th. So Marvel could also be unionized. Watch out. And I honestly, yeah, why wouldn't they want more people to go ahead and sign up and pay their free, pay their dues? Doesn't make surprise to me. So no more strike talk. We're done. We're going to get in the last few minutes and talk about a few more things. Eh, it's just some quick things here. In the movie space. So we got, what, Blue Beetle coming up this weekend, Strays coming up this weekend, among others. But the summer movie season is already pretty much, you know, wrapping up. Barbie has cleaned house, $1.2 million, $1.2 billion. Oppenheimer closing in on $700 million. Making money, making money. Now, Rolling Stone talked to Randall Park as an actor and comedian. And he made some comments about Barbie that got some headlines. Randall Park made the point that Hollywood is taking the wrong lessons from a massive blockbuster movie like Greta Gerwig's Barbie. That, quote, in general, the industry is taking the wrong lessons. For example, Barbie's this massive blockbuster, and the idea is make more movies about toys? No. Make more movies by and about women. In the interviewer adds, the lesson here should be that you gave this brilliant independent woman filmmaker and Greta Gerwig the reins to big blockbuster movie and Margot Ruby got the chance to star and produce in it. Now, this is going to make Mattel Films jumpstart their movie ambitions. They already have 14 movies in development based on Mattel toys and other properties. Hot Wheels, Polly Pocket, American Girl, Rock'em Sock'em Robots, Magic 8-Ball, Uno and Matchbox. And the Barbie sequel, which is inevitable this at this point. Yeah, there will be a Barbie too. I pretty much can guarantee that. 
he continued now at the outset. We're not saying, okay, let's think already about movie two and three. Let's get the first one right and make that a success. And if you do that, opportunities open up very quickly once you establish the first movie as a successful representation of a franchise on a big screen. Successful movies lend themselves to more movies. Our ambition, our ambition is to create film franchises. So there's that going on. So, I mean, okay, I get the point. Take more attention to not just the movie brand being the reason that the movie did well, which I can agree with that. Listen, I'm not taking anything away from Greta Gerwig. I think she did a really a pretty good job with the movie. Hey, does she want to put some content there that will be considered woke and a little bit controversial? Yeah, she sure did. But ultimately, she did a pretty good movie. Hey, if I didn't have anything else to do on Friday, I was almost ready to go watch it a second time. I didn't think it was that bad. I really didn't. And I'm not saying it like it was like I was annoyed or cringed by it. No, I just thought, you know what? I got the free movie. I got my subscription. Maybe I'll go watch it, watch it again because I have nothing else to watch because I want to go see a movie. And I thought Barbie would be a good enough movie for me to go back and watch again. And I don't do that often. But see, the last time I did that with the subscription was the Batman. I went back and watched it again. And I enjoyed it. It was nice to go and watch it a second time. I was going to do it with Top Gun Maverick, but I didn't get a chance to go. And honestly, I almost thought about Oppenheimer this time around, but eh. Three hours is still a long time. I, I probably would have still enjoyed it, but I didn't think I need to watch it again. It was with Barbie. I had a thing where when I got there, I kind of timed wrong the amount of time I was going to need to wait in concession for me to get over to watch the movie because the concession lines were about a, a half hour normally, but this time was more like 40 minutes, 45 minutes. And I timed myself a little bit off. I got to get to a little bit early, but I, you got to time it right. You know, I mean, for me, I want to be able to get there where I'm not getting there way too early. And I'm watching Maria Menounos talk about, you know, whatever, and doing the trivia with the same thing I always see all the time. I don't need to see that. Or Perry's picks, the movie thing, the the movie stuff, you know, the movie, right? If you know what I'm talking about in the trailers, you know, the, the preview stuff, it's always there, right? Like I want to get there just before the trailers because I want to watch the trailers but the timing has to be right. And usually I can get there to my movie theater in about 30 minutes and I have enough time to get over there and get it done, but it didn't happen. So I noticed, okay, I'm in line and there's other movies going on. So like, it was just really tough for me to go and sit there in line. I already had water with me as a canteen. I was going to go buy me a soda, buy me popcorn and other things. And I'm like, you know what? I can't wait. So I decided, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to go over to, uh, I'm going to go to the movie right now, watch it. And I will find it the moment where I can go ahead and go back out the concession. And I maybe miss about 10 minutes of the part right after Barbie learns she has to go back to the real world. And it's a travel with her and Ken back to the real world, going from Barbie land over to the real world. So that's the part I missed. And by the time I got back, Barbie was already talking to the young, the daughter of America Ferrer's character and getting roasted, right? Getting lambasted. The girl making her cry which I was the part I felt bad for. I felt bad for Margot Robbie. I wanted to give her a hug. Anyways, a couple of radio points I want to make. Uh, you know, there was some other things I was going to say. There's music and radio stuff I got to bring up, but I'll take real quick. All right. It was a story from Variety. 
MPC streaming, what that means for the future of digital content. This is the the Pinky Doll Cherry Crush stuff. And that was something that we're being talking about that is very popular now because they think there's a market for it. But they, see, I'm sorry. I don't think this is, this is nothing more than a fad. I don't believe that MPC streaming is going to make that much in digital content. I know they want to say that, but I don't believe it is. So right now they're saying that Peaky Doll makes up to $7,000 a day. The trend could hold lessons for marketers and media companies suggesting a powerful way to engage audiences. Tapping into nostalgia and associations with gaming experiences or digital pastimes strongly held by gamers who are familiar to digital natives. Listen, it's not, it's not mentally good. Okay. For those that are spending time to watch the NPC streaming. No, no. I, I would rather just bring back the ASMR stuff. Okay. Than this. The NPC streaming is just, it's a fad. I think it's a trend. And I think for people to think that it's going to happen, listen, they make the point in here in this article from uh, a variety. The NPC live streaming trend carries an undeniable aspect of power play that borders on erotic as content creators themselves often attractive. Well, yes, they are. Perform acts on demand in response to monetary tokens of appreciation. Right. Prostitution, basically. But, you know, digitally. It's simping. So say that. While the streams aren't overtly sexual, some might find the appeal, the illusion of control, the offer. Discomfort around that aspect has done nothing to stall viewing. Right. It's just got to slow down. It just they can't have this. NPC streaming demonstrates how game thinking and mechanics are being even more explicitly applied in reference to non-game contexts where social media itself can be understood and gamified engaging with other people or at least other users. NPC videos suggest our growing digital immersion, holding a mirror to our digital lives and, com- and culture as is shaped by our engagement patterns, pointing, even altering over our, per- our perceptions of what's real. Yeah, this, I'm actually talking to somebody tomorrow about, you know, AI girlfriends for my Depraved and the Botra series. I'm like, what in the hell is this? But I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to have an open mind to see what they're doing with this. I'm, I'm curious about it. So, you know, if I get a chance, listen to Depraved and the Botra this week coming up and I'll tell you about this website that does AI girlfriends, dream girls. They say, I want to learn about that. We're learning about that tomorrow morning when I record that and I'll let you know how that turns out. Now, TikTok and Warner brother and Warner music has made a deal and music business worldwide explains that it's on course to make TikTok the MTV of the 21st century, but the, to do so, it needs better relations with the best rest of the music industry. And that's what I think needs to happen. TikTok is going to be the MTV, the tastemaker. It's starting to get there. But they also want to be able to get with the music industry so that quality artists can get their content out there viral as well. <clears throat> so they say that you, YouTube, perhaps most notably TikTok, has at one stage or another been a headache for the music industry where music is used and shared freely and organically, but with underwhelming benefit to the creators and rights holders behind that music. So part of the process of growing up for a media platform is the realization that it will have to play by the rules when it comes to music rights. That was the trajectory that YouTube followed. Now TikTok is now going to be set to go and start paying royalties. They've made a deal 
with Warner Music Group last month. Arguably the clearest sign yet, the social media platform, which has 1 billion active monthly users, seven years into existence, is maturing, and the licensees licenses the entire repertoire of Warner Recorder Music and Warner Chapel Music, not only to TikTok, but to the other ByteDance-owned entities. Their video editing platform, CapCut, the commercial music library, and the newly created streaming TikTok music service. Now, they talked to, until we learned from Warner Music Group's CEO, Robert Kinkle, in their company's third quarter earnings call, he cautioned that it isn't at liberty to divulge details of how much you're getting on the deal, but what can I, what I can say is this. The deal features improved monetization per user that's comparable to other streaming services, fully recognizing the value of our music and how critical it is to the engagement on the platform. So yeah, similar to Spotify, YouTube music, then a sure, a bet, a sure bet. We're no longer talking about a lump sum payment model, right? They're paying significant money for, for royalties. And if they can get this from TikTok, then radio has to come next. Eventually, hey, talking about royalties, Sound Exchange is going after SiriusXM. A lawsuit's been filed to SiriusXM for $150 million. And they're, recover, they're trying to ask to recover $150 million in unpaid royalties and late fees under the Copyright Act. And the lawsuit's been filed in the Eastern District of Virginia and a U.S. District Court. The SiriusXM manipulated federal regulations to artificially lower the calculation of creator royalties. And they're seeking compensatory damages. And the SiriusXM representative rep defends the company's actions, asserting they have adhered to regulatory frameworks and have paid over $5 billion in royalties over the past decade. And they highlighted the dispute revolves around ordinary course matters, such as audits and revenue allocation for bundled products. So there's that going on. Another story coming out from Billboard talks about songwriters and publishers have a $250 million payday coming after streaming royalty determination and readjusting royalties will be including settling over and under payments. And what happened was they said that the Copyright Royalty Board has printed its phono record three final determination in the Federal Register. And what they are saying with this is that they're going to make the new rate structure official, concluding a more of four-year royalty road between publishers and streaming services. So they're expecting that industry estimates could be $400 million in determined rates, finalized eight months after the 2017-2022 term expired. So there would be another $250 million in unpaid mechanical royalties from digital services to publishers and songwriters. Services like Spotify, Amazon Music, YouTube, and Pandora have six months to review and adjust pay past payments. Famous made for use mechanicals to the new rates. So yeah, they're going after that. And another story that's coming out, the radio industry. It's formally asking a federal court to set both ASCAP and BMI's music royalty rates. Radio must also fall in line. The Radio Music License Committee is still fighting with ASCAP and BMI over whether the new rate agreements are decided jointly or separately but they filed separate rate requesting requests in U.S. District Court in New York for the two performance rights organizations after they lost their first-round attempts to unite the two proceedings. Remember we talked about a few months ago? 
so they're still waiting on a port, a appeals court judge, the RMLC, on keeping them together. The decision was wrongly decided and may move to bring the two back together at a later date if the court agrees. And the Radio Music License Committee is also laying out its argument for where rates should head for stations in the coming years. And so we'll have to find out what's going to go on with that because radio could still have to be worried about this part as well. And what will radio do about that eventually? Well, we'll find out because some of these big radio companies, they can't hold on for much longer. Just say it like that. Cumulus and Odyssey, two of the major radio station companies, they have now stakes been, been bought by Bridge Media. Let's tell you the story. Bridge Media Networks, they're owned by a five-hour five energy drink founder, Manoj Bargava. They're expanding media interest by buying stakes in Odyssey and Cumulus Media as part of a series of deals that include TV, print, and online media. So Bargava and his company, Renew Private Group Private Limited, has acquired over 800,000 shares of Cumulus and now they have a 5.15% stake. And then Odyssey, they bought $60 million of their first lien term B debt. So this guy already owns Headline News and Sports Network's News Dep and Sports News Highlights. He owns a couple of automotive and travel properties and owns and operates 50 mainly no-power TV stations nationally and 50 independent broadcast affiliates. Adding to their portfolio, if you will. All right, that's the show for tonight. Thank you for listening in and finding the show as you always do. Spotify, Apple Podcasts. If you haven't done so, please rate and review the show. I'd really appreciate it. Remember, all of my content you find at one place, kingofpodcasts.com. Again, kingofpodcasts.com. That's where you find everything on the show. And I hope you'll do that and continue to listen in. And we'll come back with another great episode next week. Until then, I appreciate all you listening in. Of course, everything's under the King of Podcasts Radio Network. Again, kingofpodcasts.com. I'm on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Trends, uh, TikTok, at King of Podcasts. Until next week, remember that content is king and the control of your content is in your hands. 